Thank you to our music team, and good morning to all of you. It's good to see... Wow, second service is awake. It is good to see the family today, and even as we've just sung, this is our story, this is our song, and I want to begin today by going on a journey with you, and uh, buckle up, I'm afraid we might have to leave your seatbelt on for the entirety of this morning's experience, but this is cool. This is really cool. We're going to begin this morning in the desert wasteland at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, Thank you to Jerry for driving our attention there already in our time of communion. We're joining the Israelites about 3,500 years ago. After 400 years of slavery, they've been delivered from bondage to Egypt through many great displays of God's power. And they've been brought through the Red Sea to worship Yahweh in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And the day we are turning to is a dramatic day. You can read about it in Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. This was holy ground for any man, but Moses to touch the mountain would result in immediate judgment from God. In fact, so concerned is God that the people will foolishly bring about their own doom that he sends Moses back down to warn them again. And as Moses warns the people, God begins to speak to everyone saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. These verses forever ensconce the worship of Israel. Yahweh, the deliverer, will be worshipped exclusively. No idol will be tolerated. The jealousy of God will hedge that exclusivity. And it will create a situation where not only jealousy and holiness are at work, but that those who love God will keep his commandments. And to these, those who keep God's commandments and love him, God will prove his covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness. And to these, God has given the right to use and live in his name. And to those who invoke the name of Yahweh in vain will be certain punishment. And so it is established from the people should come love for their God, evidenced in their obedience to him. And from God would come covenant faithfulness and the blessing of personally disclosing himself and his name to them. Now fast forward through 40 years of foolishness in the wilderness. Israel is now preparing to enter the promised land. Moses is at the end of his life and he's renewing the law of God to the people, which is the story of Deuteronomy. No fewer than seven times in that book is this idea of loving God and keeping his commandments connected together. And perhaps most powerfully is the seventh and final time that we read of in Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 15, which says, See, 
I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Soon after these words were spoken, Moses was dead. It was left to Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. God blessed Joshua, and the people of God were able to drive out most of the inhabitants of Canaan and take possession of the country. And as the final battles were finished and the people prepared to lay down arms, Joshua gave this reminder in Joshua 22. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so we ask them, will the nation enjoy this rest for long? Will they love Yahweh and obey him? Will they be able to enjoy the covenant faithfulness of God and experience his nearness and his self-disclosure? And well, we know the story. They will almost immediately turn from the true and living God and begin to court the idols of the surrounding nations and dishonor Yahweh in their midst. And after almost a thousand years of patience with his rebellious people, God finally brings the judgment upon them he had warned of at the very beginning. God's people are carried off into exile and the temple of Yahweh is destroyed a young man from the ruling class finds himself a courtier in a foreign land and grieves over the ruin of his people and their land. More importantly, he grieves over the sad state of the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. A student of the scriptures, this man, Daniel, observed later in life that the allotted time for the exile, as prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, was coming to an end. And he turned in hope to God in prayer. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. And Daniel continued to list the sins of the people and why they had been rightfully judged, yet he is hopeful, Daniel 9, 9, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him 
And it is to this compassion and forgiveness that Daniel pleads, continuing in verse 17. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake, O my God. Do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. This prayer was lifted up around the year 539 BC and it was immediately answered by the messenger angel of God himself, Gabriel. And he gave to Daniel not only the promise that, yes, the compassion of God will come upon you, the forgiveness of God will come to you in the form of a Messiah, but he gave Daniel a specific timeline of when exactly that Messiah would appear to restore the people to God and God to the people. And that prophecy counted down until it finally ran out on the day that a man named Jesus from Nazareth rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and presented himself to the people. 1,500 years of Israel's failed striving to be a people that would love God and obey him have led to this week in which we find ourselves in the Gospel of John. Indeed, to the very night we find ourselves in the Gospel of John. 1,500 years of God desiring to draw near to his people and shower the blessings of his name and covenant faithfulness are about to find satisfaction in the accomplished work of the one whose words we study this morning. And so I take us on this journey this morning so that we will better appreciate the profound weight of what we hear when we read our passage today. And I'd invite you then to take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to John 14, as is our custom. If you are able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word as we read from John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. John 14 verse 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Would you pray with me? Great Father, we thank you this morning for the chance to study these wonderful words that communicate to us the truth of a wonderful reality that in Christ we are able to love you and keep your commandments, that in Christ we are kept in such a way that though we are still imperfect, 
your covenant faithfulness, your blessings to us are secured. And I pray this morning we would rest in that reality, find joy in that reality, but also Lord, open our eyes and, and would you work in our hearts so that we would live that reality out in faithful obedience for your glory and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our text this morning, we are going to learn about loving Jesus. And as we've seen, it's not just about some emotional connection between an individual and their Savior. It is connected to the design of God for how the Creator and the creation are to live together in blessedness. And unlike the Old Testament, Jesus is in the midst on this night that we are studying of inaugurating a new covenant that will solve the problem that has plagued our relationship with God from the garden on, the problem of sin. And so let us listen carefully and learn well from the Savior what loving Him is to look like, what helps we are given to do so, and what hope we can expect to attain. And that is our outline this morning. And so we begin by looking at the heart of what it means to love Jesus in verse 15, Jesus begins by saying, if you love me, he has just told them, you have the privilege to use my name, to invoke my name in your prayers to the Father. And whatever you pray in my name, the Father will do. But now Jesus is going to expand on that. He's going to help us understand it. Just like God contextualized love and obedience in the Old Testament in the context of do not take my name in vain, this is how we will ensure that we do not take the Son's name in vain either. What is the principle, what is the force that must define every saint who can properly invoke the name of Jesus without taking it in vain? And that is love. Love, agape love, as we would expect. The loving of sacrifice, the loving of commitment, the love of allegiance. And it's interesting to note that here as Jesus lays this out, it is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus is not teaching about the love of the Father for us, the love of us for other people, but teaching for the first time about how he is to be loved by his disciples. And what comes from this is a critical lesson for us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love for Jesus is demonstrated in obedience. In fact, so strong is the connection between those two things. One commentator noted the linkage approaches the level of definition. Loving Jesus equals obedience. John is going to explicitly write that that is true when he writes later in his life, the first epistle of John, chapter 5, verse 3. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, what joy and victory and nearness to God would be ours if we could only grasp and live this truth. To love God is to obey God. And that this obedience is not a begrudging obedience. And you've seen begrudging obedience if you've ever had a child or been a child. That this is not what is being spoken of here is seen in that word keep. This is a word that means to guard something. And to watch over it because it's important to protect it, to persist in it, to fulfill it. It's a consuming and wholehearted obedience. 
It's not the obedience when you see you know, that power play between a parent and a child. Clean your room. I don't want to clean my room. Clean your room. I don't want to clean my room. Oh, fine. I'll do it. Oh, good. They're obeying me now. No, they're not. They're giving ground in this battle so they can refortify for tomorrow's battle. That is not what it's speaking. Nor is this kind of all-consuming love of obedience something that is just meant to characterize those extra holy people like you know, missionaries and pastors and stuff. Because this is the very same word used by the Savior in the Great Commission to describe how we are to teach disciples to observe, to keep, to guard all that Jesus has commanded us. And so the application for us is simple but rich. Love without obedience or obedience without love is first of all false it's false as, as it is taught to us and revealed to us in Scripture. You cannot have one without the other or you have a fraud. A love without an obedience is not truly love because it does not actually value the will and the words of the one you claim to love. And obedience without love is not in fact true obedience because it is not a submission to the one that you are claiming to listen to, but it is a standard that you are seeking to keep independent of your relationship to them. This has so much implication for how we view our relationship to God. Oh, I love Jesus, but you know, reading his Bible, understanding what he has to say, doing what he says, that's not a real high priority. How can you claim that he is your love if you do not, in fact, love what he has said? Perhaps you have created an idol and named it Jesus. Or conversely, do you obey because you fear him, that he is the God that will smite you relentlessly if you stray? And so your relationship of obedience is defined by fear and not by love. I listened to a lecture by an unbeliever this week who said he is scared to take the step of saying that he believes in God because he's afraid if he takes that step, God will strike him with lightning because he knows he can't live up to God's standards. Our obedience and our love are false until they are together. That has implications for our relationship with God, but it also has great implications for how we model this, especially those of you who are undertaking the great adventure of parenting. Do your children understand the linkage between love and obedience? Are they able to think that they love you as their parents even when they are hard-heartedly rebellious against your instruction? Or have they learned to obey you because they fear you and do not understand that their disobedience is an affront to their love to God and their love to you and the enjoyment of the relationship? If we train our children that way, how can we blame them when they then project that onto their relationship with God? Love without obedience or obedience without love is false. Second, it it attacks God's character. It attacks God's character. It is to say, I can love God in some fashion, but what he commands is so flawed, I will not love his words and his heart at the same time. It's an affront to his character. The other way around is also true. I will obey God even though I don't love him is saying something about God as not being worthy of love. And even if I have to do what he says, there is something in the character and the nature of God that does not compel my love. And so when we unlink love and obedience, 
We attack God's character. And thirdly, it leads to destruction because tragically, a love and an obedience that are separated are a gospel that is broken. To say I love God and I reject his word is to reject the very truth that is the foundation of the saving nature of the gospel. To embrace truth but not to love God is the other way around. It is seeking to fulfill all the different things God has said in our own strength, but it is missing out on the relationship with God, which itself is the point of salvation. And that's what Jesus constantly upbraided the Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel for. You're straining out gnats and swallowing camels by trying to obey all the law and neglecting the love of God that is the point of it all. We will return to some of these themes at the end this morning, but first we need to address what may be, as you've probably noticed, the potential disaster in the making that this close linkage between love and obedience presents. The disciples' focus is still on the distress of Jesus leaving them. They fear that that separation from him will be experienced in a way that just uh, uproots their confidence, uproots their ability to maintain themselves as a group and what they're doing. But there's something they should be much more afraid of. To love and obey God has been the mission of God's people since the beginning. And it has been a nearly unmitigated catastrophe. And now that Jesus has called his disciples to undertake this most important but most historically doomed calling, how can they hope to succeed where all others have failed? Particularly when Jesus soon leaves them. And thus Jesus moves immediately from the heart of love to the help they will so sorely need. Look with me at the help for loving Jesus in verses 16 to 20. Jesus gives two great promises here to his disciples to comfort them and encourage them. And this is real comfort and real encouragement. It is not platitudes and wishful thinking. It is concrete help that is real and sufficient for the challenge. And these are helps that are available for us today as well. And the first is this, a truthful mediator. A truthful mediator. Look with me beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. There are two specific things, as I said in our text today, that Jesus says, I will do. And this is the first. I will ask the Father to send another helper. There's a number of observations that we can make here. First, note the involvement now of the entire Trinity in the care of the disciples. The Father is the architect of salvation and the giver of all good gifts. The Son is the one who accomplishes the plan and asks the Father on our behalf for what we would have never imagined to ask for on our own. And finally, the Spirit is the power behind our salvation and is himself both God and the gift of God to us. What a blessed gift that is that the entire Trinity is invested in the care of those who love Jesus. Second, note that the title given to the Holy Spirit here is helper. That word in the Greek paraclete is notoriously difficult to render in English because it's so broad. It can be used of an advocate in a legal setting. It can be used of one who mediates officially on behalf of another. It means a summoned person called to the aid of the needy. And I think today we tend to associate the words helper and comforter with thoughts of emotional support and gentle affection. And it makes us imagine the Holy Spirit is the great big cuddle pillow of the Christian life. 
No, the Holy Spirit is much stronger in his help than this. Indeed, his strong help is like unto the help of Jesus himself. As our third observation shows, the third observation here is that the Holy Spirit is said to be another helper. This is not the first helper to come from heaven. That role has been fulfilled up to this point by Jesus himself. And as Jesus prepares to return to the Father, he is determined that his own shall not be left without the only, not only the necessary resources, but the necessary person to oversee the needs of the disciples. The ministry of Jesus is not ending. He is going to go to the Father and intercede in the presence of the Father on our behalf. But he is desiring now a helper who will intercede for us in our presence as well. And fourth, this morning, the presence of the helper is meant to be an eternal gift, an enduring gift. The helper is not coming just to get the disciples through the grief process and then head off back to heaven. He is coming to stay and remain. So what will be then the primary means by which the Spirit will help? Well, Jesus goes on to tell us, verse 17, that is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. The designation Spirit of truth is used three times in Jesus' teaching on this night. Here, again in John 15, 26, again in John 16, 13. And so it is a strange invention of men that tries to pit the Holy Spirit as an expression of subjective faith against the truth as an expression of objective faith. Truth is the currency and trade of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who inspires the scriptures, 2 Peter 1. He's the one who guides into all truth, John 16, 13. His ministry to the world is a convicted of sin, righteousness, and, and justice, an objective, legal, as well as moral task. In John 16, 8, he is the visible seal and proof of our justification. Ephesians 1, he dispenses gifts to the church so that it will be built up to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, Ephesians 4. And his filling and controlling of our lives leads to outbursts of truth spoken to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.18. And this deep interrelationship between the Spirit and truth should not surprise us because we worship the true God who cannot lie, who sent his Son, the eternal Logos, the Word, who called himself the truth and the spirit of truth who works in us according to the scriptures, which are themselves also called the truth. Do you notice a theme in the working of God? That's a lot of truth. And it's only for those who love Jesus. It's only for those who love Jesus, which is why Jesus goes on to say next, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. In contrast to the disciples, the world will not have access to this gift of a helper, to the ministry of his truth in their lives. And why not? Well, he gives two reasons. First, it does not see him. The world is always looking in the wrong place. They're looking to themselves for salvation and help. They're looking to others for salvation and help. They're inventing idols to project themselves on and looking to them for salvation and help. Indeed, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
He thinks they're dumb and he lacks the capacity to understand them even if he tried. The world does not see him. Secondly, the world does not know him. And that word of experiential knowledge, the world has not shared in the Spirit. The Spirit is a reality working throughout the world, but the world have not experienced that reality, that person of the Holy Spirit directly. And this is in contrast to the disciples who have experienced the Holy Spirit and will experience Him much more soon. Which is why Jesus says in contrast, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. The disciples had been given a front row seat to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They had been the disciples of the one who had been conceived of the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, filled with the Holy Spirit and power for the working of miracles, and the one who had sent the disciples to preach and work miracles throughout Israel by the power of the Spirit. Yes, indeed, the Holy Spirit was abiding with the disciples, and this alone was encouragement and evidence of divine aid, but notice what Jesus promised was still coming. The Holy Spirit would not merely be among them, as he presently was. He would be in them, in them. How little the disciples could have imagined the realities of Pentecost that are now less than two months away. The Spirit of God would come to dwell in them and remain with them forever. What a blessing, what a benefit And what an experience for the Christian to enjoy. We've emphasized the objective nature of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in truth. But to be indwelt by another person is certainly more, but not less than an experience. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not like the gift of a personal tax assistant that you'll never meet. I'm really glad they're out there somewhere doing something helpful that's important. No, this is a relationship and a presence that now has an impact on each and every day of our lives. What a gift and what a true help. On our own, we, as all history has shown, cannot love and obey God as we should. But now we have been given the spirit of truth who can work in us that which we cannot work in ourselves. The blessings we would forfeit if we could, the spirit guards and preserves for us. And do you see this promise of keeping implied here? If we are to be indwelt with the Spirit forever, then when will we have the opportunity to lose that salvation Jesus has secured for us in his death? In the Father, we have the perfect plan of salvation. In Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for salvation. In the Spirit, we have the perfect help in our salvation. What the Father has purposed and the Son has accomplished and the Spirit has sealed cannot be undone by any means in the heavens, in the earth, or under the earth. Praise God. And so as our lesson here, worship God in spirit and in truth. As Jesus taught the woman at the well in Samaria, worship God in spirit and in truth. Do not let those be two different parts of your world. I'm worshiping God today in truth. But if that song says, raise your hand, like, no, I mean, it's all in here. If the connection of our worship does not extend from our mind to our affections, and I'm not saying you have to, like, dance around, because I don't. Uh, Fear of man problems. But if our truth that we believe does not connect to our affections to the whole man if we cannot love the lord our god with all of our heart and soul and mind 
and strength simultaneously, something is wrong. And conversely, if you are invested emotionally into worship, but it is an emotional catharsis to relieve the guilt of the week or to try to create a positive experience to fuel you through the next week, and it is disconnected from the truth of what God has revealed about himself, that is not true worship. And unbelievers and pagans can imitate that just as well in spirit and in truth together. And secondly, avail yourself of help. Avail yourself of help. I think we're a little, there we go. Avail yourself of help. God has given us the helper. Let us take advantage of the help. Let us not try to live the Christian life as a brute force action of our own strength, but knowing that he lives within us, let us seek his aid. Let us pray that his strength would work through us and that where we cannot produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control on our own, that he would work that within us so that we would then be able to obey as we ought to. Avail yourself of the help that is there. How lavish here Jesus is with his blessings. But there is one last thing I want us to notice before we get to our final verse this morning. And that is that the disciples know Jesus is still planning to leave them. And so even with this help of another helper, they're saying, but we want you. But we want you. And that's what Jesus compassionately addresses, addresses next. And he gives us here a trustworthy meeting. In verses 18 to 20, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is not an abandonment. The word orphan in the ancient world could apply both to children bereft of parents, which is our understanding today. It could also refer to disciples abandoned by a master. And it was a similar feeling of loss in the ancient world. And Jesus says, that's not what's happening here. I'm not abandoning you. I am coming back. I've left you a helper, but that helper is not going to replace my presence. I will return. What joy that must have been, even though they little understood all that would transpire between his leaving and his returning. Verse 19, Jesus goes on to explain to them, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Jesus is clarifying here what is about to take place and the disciples would, I think, go wow later when they look back and realize what he's actually talking about. But beginning with the return of Christ in his resurrected form after three days in the tomb, he would appear exclusively to his disciples with one exception. He does not appear to those in the world, but only to his disciples with the single exception of when he knocked Saul out of his saddle on the way to Damascus and called him to be an apostle. Jesus will come back to his own. And in that day, when they now have seen their Savior die, they have mourned him and feared for three days, and then seeing him return alive, it will click. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, Jesus says, and you in me, and I in you. And this is a truth that I think sprouts at the resurrection, and it just keeps growing like the plants we see all around us this time of the year they will begin to understand that like branches on a vine, like bride to a groom as living stones built together with the chief cornerstone, the disciples will finally understand what it means that Jesus is in the Father and the disciples are in Jesus and Jesus 
is in the disciples. And that's going to increase then when on that mount where Jesus gives his final teaching, he is taken up and ascends into heaven in their presence. That's going to flourish even more on the day of Pentecost when the helper finally comes and indwells them. And to a degree, we're even still waiting the final fulfillment of this promise when Jesus will return in person for his church and take us to be with him in glory. And that's the point of this whole thing. That's the point of this whole thing. It's all about that relationship between the creator and the creation becoming one of mutual love and mutual disclosure forever. And that's the hope to which we turn in our final verse. Before we get there, this quick lesson, trust the love of Jesus. Trust the love of Jesus. Jesus has told them, I'm sending a helper. I'm going to come back to you. You can trust, and that trust will be solidified when you see me. And so the Savior who gave himself for us, who rose from the dead as proof that his sacrifice was sufficient, who revealed himself to us and promised his presence, who sent to us the Holy Spirit who indwells us, this is a Jesus who backs up his words of love with eternal actions beyond any contesting and he deserves our love. We can rest in that. Jesus is of such a kind disposition, such a great power, has committed himself so completely by promise that we must, in fact, rest in his love. And for those who have come to love him and have trusted in him by faith, you can know you are eternally loved by him. And that leads us to the hope we have from loving Jesus in verse 21, which says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Returning to where he started, Jesus reminds us again that the one who loves him is synonymous with the one who obeys him. Our obedience is not what earns, it's not what causes, it's not what contributes to our salvation, but it is, however, the sure sign and necessary evidence that we, having been saved, have come to love the Savior. Faith without works is dead, says James. Love without obedience is likewise dead. And Jesus modeled this for us perfectly. His love for the Father was perfect. And how do we know that? It was because he perfectly obeyed the Father. And what is really fascinating here is to see where it's all leading to. Jesus is asking us to obey him out of love because that will make us good slaves, make us good citizens, make us useful instruments. That's true, but that's not the point. Jesus calls us to loving obedience because he's calling us into the mysterious, eternal knowing of the love of God. And this is life itself. And so he says, this one who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We know that Jesus is the sort who, having loved his own, loves them to the end. That's his nature. Those who have turned to him and set their affections on him are truly loved and sincerely loved by him. And Jesus does not merely tolerate his own. He doesn't merely manage his own. He loves them. And he demonstrates that by disclosing himself to them. This is why Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. This is why we have been made alive in Christ. This is why, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 7, in the ages to come, he will show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
We will be enjoying the gracious disclosure of Jesus to us for all eternity. And not only Jesus, but we will have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. All is well. That's the goal of loving Jesus. That's the goal of obeying Jesus. Do we get that? As we close, let's sum this all up. Loving Jesus means a few things. One, we are thankful for his authority. We are thankful for his authority. Second, we are grateful for his commands. The world says, anytime you have authority, you have oppression and oppressed. And the Christian faith says, no, that's a lie. We love the authority of God. We are thankful and grateful for his commands to us because they are good. We are dependent on his helper. We are dependent on his helper and we are trusting of his promises. This is what loving Jesus means. And that leads then to what loving Jesus looks like. We are faithful in our obedience. We are faithful in our obedience. This is a great week for us to check our hearts. Is our professed love for Christ matched by a joyful obedience of his commandments? And if it's not, am I thankful for his authority? Am I grateful for his commands? Am I dependent on his helper? Am I trusting of his promises? Do I believe he is who he said he is? And so where do I need to turn and begin to enjoy the fellowship of being in Christ and the Father in us and the Spirit in us and that relationship that God designs for us to be in. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we are truly thankful for how you have revealed yourself to us. We don't deserve that our Creator should disclose himself to what he has created. We are so far beneath you. And yet, this great privilege, having been purchased for us at such a great cost in the death of your Son, and having been provisioned by such a great helper as the Holy Spirit who lives within us, we would seek not to waste for a moment. So may we live in the joyful obedience that will draw us near to you, understanding that in keeping your word, we are doing that which is good. In loving you and doing what is right, we are drawing near in a relationship that will become more and more perfect as the Spirit does His work in us until we reach glory and all sin and all faults are removed so that we may, without any veil, without any division, be wrapped up in the true love of God forever. Help us to cast off all counterfeit loves, all those things in this world that pretend to it, and may we walk according to truth in the power of the Spirit of truth and by the Son who is the truth because you are the true and living God. This we pray for your glory and in the name of your Son. Amen.